0: Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens And my time capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me five things from their life that they would choose to put into a time capsule to preserve. Four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to put in there so that they can forget it and never have to think about it again. My guest in this episode is the comic, actor, television and radio presenter Ted Robbins. Edward Michael Robbins, as his mum and dad called him, is part of the Amazing Robbins family. That's why he's got that surname, which includes his sisters and his niece, Emily Atak. He's even related to Paul McCartney, and unlike most people from Liverpool who claim that, he really is. I first met Ted in the 80s when we performed together in the Saturday night ITV comedies The Ted and Kate show and the Kate Robin show more of that later and I can tell you from experience that he is one of the nicest and funniest men you could meet. As an actor, he's appeared in the film Calendar Girls, Phoenix Nights with Peter Kay, Little Britain, loads of episodes of the children's show The Slammer as The Governor. He was in Two Pints of Lager and a Packet of Crisps, Chuckle Vision, Benny Dorm, Bad Education with Jack Whitehall, Coronation Street as Brendan Finch, Diddy TV, Birds of a Feather, Father Brown, Shakespeare and Hathaway, and The League of Gentlemen as Tony Cludo, a member of the rock band Creme Brulee. Ted is also a brilliant panto performer and was for many years the best warm-up man for TV in the country, without doubt. And I think he demonstrates why in this episode, which took more effort to make than it may seem when you listen to it. The first recording I made with Ted was a complete disaster. Nothing to do with Ted, who was brilliant. It was all my fault. The sound was, to use a technical term, shit. After we'd spent nearly a month trying to salvage it, I I say we, my son John, who produces this podcast, did all the work, we finally decided, reluctantly, that we should have another go at it. So many thanks to Ted for giving me an hour of his time, twice. And many thanks to our mutual age, which meant that we could barely recall what we'd said in the first place, which made it so much easier. So, finally, here is the wonderful Ted Robbins and the five things he'd like to put in a time capsule from his... And I know I say this often, but in his case, it's absolutely true. His extraordinary life.
3: The message is don't be too cynical. And uh, you never know how the fates sometimes surprise you. And all the old sayings, I think, come true. Be nice to people on the way up because you might meet some on the way down. Mm-hmm. And that's not so It's just life, isn't it, Mike?
0: Yeah, it's just the way you ought to behave in life. You're right.
3: And people can catch you at about sometimes in a bad moment, and but generally most people in our business are nice. You know, we get this horrible super request, super request nickname. There's me trying to use big words, marmalade. That's a big word. Um, <laughs> we get called lovies, don't we, Lovies, Because, well, first of all, we called lovies because we often can't remember people's names. Hello, love. Hello, darling. What's your name again? Hmm. Oh, do you remember that season in um, <clears throat> well,
1: we <laughs> Did
3: we ever? No, where, where we ever... No. <laughs> I can't remember. Do you remember the story about Tom Baker, apparently? was chatting to a, a lady and Tom Baker, the doctor, you know, was... Talking away, very eccentric man. I, I don't think I ever met him. I don't know if you did.
0: Yeah, I've worked with him. He's uh, he's fantastic.
3: Trained as a, a priest, didn't he, or a monk or something? He went into orders and then worked on a building site and was a scouser. I never knew. But he was talking once at a party, the young lady, and he said, "Well, tell me, my dear, where have we met before?" She said, "Tom, we were married for three years." <laughs>
0: Oh, wouldn't that be great if it were true? Let's make it true. It is true, Ted. It is true. It's all
3: the land of (laughs) make-believe.
0: Well, we're here to talk about the thing that you're going to put into a time capsule. Yeah. But five things. So I think we ought to come clean and say that we've done this recording before.
3: Well, we have. With wonderful expertise, we managed to do um, Norman Collier on the sound. Mm -hmm. So for anyone who's listening now, this is Norman Collier, a great comedian, of the comedian's age, and he did a routine about a broken microphone, didn't he?
1: Mm-hmm. And it
3: sounded like this: "You go, well, ladies and gentlemen, time for bingo now, but the mic out. Oh, hey, you no, know, hat- kick that plug, will you? Big loose wire. All threes, twenty-seven, four and eight, <laughs> 19. Top of the show.
0: (laughs) That is exactly what it sounded like. And although you could sort of tell what was going on, sadly, we've decided we ought to do it again. But luckily, we're both of an age where we can talk about it again and it'll be a surprise to both of us.
4: (laughs) (laughs) It's always something
3: new and exciting, isn't it? Without further ado, then, I do remember it's called the time capsule. And Mm. I think I was going to talk, I wanted to talk about something that I want to remember, parts of me don't want to remember it because I've, I'm still trying to bash out my uh, autobiography. And um, I tried it on tablet form using keyboards, and it always ends up the same. My wife's called Judith. Me going, Judith, I think I've lost it all, Judith. She goes, <laughs> no, just press save. So I'm now trying again in longhand with a good old pen. But um, I've got a great opening line for my autobiography, and it's this I was born in Walton, Liverpool, on August 11th, 1959, to my mother, Betty Elizabeth Robbins, and my dad, Mike Robbins. And I died, 2015, at the Manchester Arena at 10.20 in the evening. More of that and on.
0: That's very Dickensian, that, isn't it? That sounds like the opening line of A Christmas Carol, which is that Marley was dead, to begin with.
3: Do you know, that's exactly the inspiration I thought of when I was writing that. <laughs> I knew it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but but it's true. So I I was born in Liverpool, 1955. My mum, Betty, and my dad, Mike. My dad was a Bucklins red coat. He met my mum when she was on holiday. Putheli north wales and he was a compare dashing ronald coleman lookalike XRAF, XRAF, six foot one he met about 1950 53 and he chased her all around the camp and she ran off back to liverpool and uh, it's quite a story how they met her. have you got time for that
0: yeah i'd love to hear it because i remember your mum and dad very well
3: you do remember my dad was a very distinguished looking man and um, in fact if you watch four weddings and a funeral the great film with hugh grant and uh, everybody in this he in the first wedding he's all over the opening shots He's the mayor at the wedding with a big gold chain, and he's all over it like a, I won't say cheap suit, because he was always immaculately turned out. Mm. And like me, it was a constant disappointment to me. He said, you could put a 3,000-guinea suit on you, you'd still look like a sack of potatoes tied in the middle. But he was very funny, looked like Colonel Sanders, neatly trimmed Van Dyke beard. And he specialised um, in his senior years with my mum on, he always called it supporting artist, and they, they were well-loved at uh, Emmerdale, in fact, when my dad died, they played uh, the Emmerdale music as, as as he brought down the aisle, which of course still does bring a bit of tears to my eye. And um, he chased my mum, this young, beautiful Irish girl with raven black hair. And my mum had green eyes, and she looked like an actress at the time called Diana Durbin. Yes. But her name was Betty Danner. And her mum was Anne McCartney, with the McCartney link in the family there. Mm. My dad was most taken with this young woman. She'd been about 24, I think, 23, 24. And she was on holiday with her best friend from the Royal Liver Insurance Company. She was They were typists in Liverpool. They had one week's holiday. And her friend was called Sheila Archibald, which I always think is a great name, isn't it, Sheila?
0: Oh, fantastic, yeah. Just, yeah. You know exactly where she comes from.
3: Oh, yes. So my dad set his eyes on her. And he was quite a lad, my dad, you know. He had a, an eye for the girl, shall we say. And he, in later years, he said, I chased her all around the camp. And my mum says, he never caught me, though, and winked, you know. And in those days, he didn't catch You know, she so went back to Liverpool. And he couldn't get her out of his mind, this beautiful Scouse girl with raven black hair and green eyes, who looked like Diana Durbin. He couldn't stop thinking about her. That's all he knew about her. Of course, no telephones, no mobiles, no address. All he knew was she worked as a typist in one of the many insurance companies on the uh, seafront at Liverpool. You know the famous liver birds, the liver buildings. Their insurance offices, well, they were mostly at the time. And you know, do you know the legend of the liver birds? The legend is that the liver birds, these mythical birds, peer down from their eerie, at the top of the liver building, right up in the sky. Incredible sight. I mean, a famous landmark of Liverpool. And they say that the, the liver birds flap their wings every time a virgin walks past. <laughs> <laughs> They've yet to flap yet. So my dad couldn't get it out of his mind. So he took a couple of days leave from Butlins, a few weeks after meeting Bessie, and he got on the Crosville bus from Pulselli to Liverpool, got off at the Pier and he got a bag of pennies, the old pennies, and went into a phone box where they had the old yellow pages and the telephone directories chained to the side. And he got the telephone director and he looked up insurance companies. He knew she worked at a Liverpool insurance company. And he pushed the pennies in and he asked the same question time after time. Beep, beep, beep. Hello, uh, excuse me, this is a bit of a long shot, but you don't have a typist who works for you uh, with dark hair. It looks a bit like the film star Diana Durbin called Bessie, do you? And the answers he got were ranged from, pull the other one, mate, he's got bells on, to why don't you go procreate, you know. <laughs> Finally, he asked the same question, have you got some, looks like Diana Durbin? And the voice said, well, there's Bessie Danner I suppose she does look a bit like Diana Durbin. Yeah, I suppose she does not bit. Why, he was asking, he said, well, I'm called Mike from butlins just tell her mike so he had was someone here to see you and she said hello who's this he said it's mike he said mike who he said mike robbins from Putheli." she said oh mike the red coat yes yeah. she said where are you he said i'm down at the pier ed where are you sit i'm up in the offices he said well do you fancy a coffee and they were married before the year was out wow that was that
0: oh what a beautiful story
3: i was born just in wedlock
0: <laughs> the first chance they got yeah i was the first
3: of five
0: <laughs> and what a family what a family it's a lovely thing and i remember when we did the two series together at granada television and right. the first of those two series ted was called the ted and kate show yeah and then they made the decision that kate was the person they wanted to be the star so yeah. they made it the kate robin show and you carried on instead of going well i've got a minute it was me and her, and now it's just her. You came in there and you kept supporting your sister, and and it's one of the most generous and it it really moving at the time. I remember.
3: Well, I'll tell you, I'll be perfectly honest about it. We we were offered uh, some, a couple of series by Granada, and Kate had a very established act at the time. It was a great impressionist. She was doing Who Do You Do. She was doing shows in London, and I was I didn't know what I was really, but suddenly I was thrust into the limelight, and I was. This, you know, Kate and Ted, mm. I was kind of learning on air and we were taken out for dinner after the first series, which was fair, it wasn't a flop, you know, but it was big Saturday night, 6.30 and the new producer was brought in. And I thought when they take you for dinner, it's either promotion or demotion. Mm. And in Kate's case, it was promotion. And they said, we want to call it the Kate Robbins show. Now, Ted. You've got a choice here. You can, you're contracted. We can pay you up front the whole fee. And it was a considerable fee. Or you can stay and we'll have Kate with three fellas round her. And the fellas were going to be the great Paul Bradley and yourself. And I said, look, I thought about it. And Kate, we were, we disappeared into the Soho night. And Kate said, Ted, I'm so sorry. I feel awful. I should feel absolutely delighted. And my own brother, you know, but it's my own shit. I said, you've got to do it. You've got mm. to do it. And we did it, and do you know what? It was the best show we ever did, I think, the three of us.
0: It was great. And then you did discover that chemistry, didn't you, the two of you?
3: We did, funny enough, and we did some of the best sketches. I remember we did a Hancock sketch, the blood donor, except it wasn't a blood bank, it was a a sperm bank, wasn't it? And I wrote that, and I was thrilled, and I did a Tony Hancock, oh dear, oh dear, (laughs) that's fairly nearly half. How much do you want? (laughs) How dare you? 10 cc is why that's very nearly yes quite
1: <laughs>
3: and of course Silla came to mm. life in another form there with kate going oh and she invented a laura laura laughs because Silla didn't consciously say i've had a laura laura fun" until kate started doing it on the saturday night yeah. and on their own show and with us you know yes,
0: yeah, amazing isn't it you find a catchphrase that they don't actually say and then they start saying it
3: well of course kate they also created Fergie, the Sarah Ferguson. Mm. They wanted an impression of her because she was all the news, of course, marrying Prince Andrew. Whatever happened to him? Anyway, um, <laughs> Fergie. Nobody had really heard her talk, so Kate invented her as this sort of upper public school, which probably wasn't wider than that. But she'd never heard it because nobody had, and uh, she just came out with this little "Call Me James <laughs> And she put this snorting yeah. laugh in, sort of horsey laugh. But I'm sure Sarah Ferguson never did. But that became how people perceived Sarah Ferguson to be.
0: Yeah, the jolly hockey sticks thing. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, I mean, there you are. So the whole lot of you have all done different, amazing different things. So your mum and dad meeting, your dad making their effort was worth it because he's produced you lot.
3: He did, he did. As we all used to say, I'm going to do the joke together, Mike. In our family, we're all in show business Even the sewing machine was a singer.
0: (laughs) I'm writing it down. I'm writing it down, Ted.
3: I'd rub it out if I were you.
0: (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Anyway, now, I know when we did this before, you said that this is something, in a way, you'd want to bury, but also something you'd like to keep to remind you of it.
3: Got to keep it, because if it hadn't happened, they'd have buried me, Mm -hmm. quite literally. Uh, I was on stage doing the Phoenix Night Show Peter had got Phoenix Knight's team back together. And for uh, comic relief, we were going to do, I think it ended up 15 nights at the Manchester Arena. And I was going to play Den Perry. And the idea was I was just opposite the Manchester Arena in Strangeways Prison. And I'd burrowed out for the night. And I'd come up through a trap door and kind of try and ruin Brian Potter's big night, you know, yeah, man who burnt the Phoenix Club down. So we're all very excited. In real life, I was having trouble with my heart valve, my aortic heart valve, which had been damaged when I was eleven because I had a massive fever, blah, blah, blah. But I'd been all right, I'd been okay, but in later years I was having problems with it and I'd gone into atrial fibrillation and the docs were keeping an eye on it. I was also carrying a lot more weight in those days. I've got four or five stone heavier, mm. which as Vicky Gervais says, quite heavy for what is basically a land-based mammal. <laughs> so we were all set up to go, the surgeon who was going to do the operation to replace the heart valve, rightly or wrongly, i of begged him to let me do this show and he said okay you're on the right medication but the minute that you finish the 15 nights you come straight to hospital and we'll we'll do it there and then I said okay came the the big buildup we didn't have any rehearsal we had one night rehearsal on a big sound stage in West Yorkshire because it's a massive stage we'd all rehearsed our bits separately with Peter and written bits with peter and my gag was going to be i was going to come out be rude about brian potter make out just escape from jail and then go into a version of relight the fire with phoenix is my only desire <laughs> there were going to be big jets of flame in the back of the stage They're all very dramatic so it was very exciting so it was all set up and the night before and i knew something wasn't quite right in my heart of hearts there was a fullness in my chest. It wasn't like a typical heart attack because I didn't have a typical heart attack. I had cardiac arrest, which is a separate thing. However, leave that for now. Um, I knew something wasn't right. Now, a few years before in Bosnia, a military corporal in the Royal Army Medical Corps called Gary, Gary Loka, was on uh, manoeuvres with um, his best friend who was called Brad. And they were in Bosnia and they were having an arms armistice And people were bringing in explosive devices, homemade devices, and the idea was no names, no pack drill. The army took them away, put them on a trestle table, and the army disposal, bomb disposal squad dealt with it. So Gary was there as a fully trained paramedic. Now these guys know everything about everything. They have to be surgeon, diagnostician, they have to be physician, they have the anatomy, physiology, everything. But Gary was on duty, and he was a fairly quiet morning, he told me later but he was standing with his best friend, Brad, who was also from Yorkshire. Gary's from Pudsey in uh, West Yorkshire. Mm. Somebody brought a box and he opened the box and in it was a homemade device of some sort. And because the box was so ornate, it was like parquet, beautifully built. His friend Brad did what he shouldn't have done, was he he opened the box and then lifted the device. Well, all Gary says was he was about, I don't know, not even 10 yards away. Uh, A shattering boom. There was dust and pink stuff and just a a small pit was formed and not much left of his best friend. I won't go into details now, but later when I got to know Gary, he told me he he ran, everyone ran screaming. Then he remembered these guys are trained to run towards these things. (sighs) Christ, sorry. And he went back and he retrieved what he could of his best friend. And they went back to the the mess hall and all got pissed like squaddies do. And then they auctioned off his clothes and his kits and they send the money to the widow. And this is what these squaddies do. God bless them. Uh, So Gary carried on because in those days, it was a long time ago, you know, there wasn't as much attention paid to mental health as there is these days. And Gary soldiered on, Mm. literally. Uh, But he said I was going down and down. And in the end, he was um, discharged honourably with severe PTSD, went home. His life was in bits. I won't go into any more details except to say two lovely lads and his wife, and they, they couldn't get it together anymore. And he was living alone and he did try to take his own life, but that's another story. He'd gone back to live with his mum and dad when the Phoenix Night date came up. You couldn't get a ticket. It was absolutely packed out, as all Peter's
0: gigs are, you know. Yeah, just look what's happened to this recent tour that he's announced. It just sold out. Bang, gone.
3: Absolutely. And he, he said to me, Peter, and t- we were talking via text, and he said, uh, I don't know whether anyone will come because I don't know if they remember me now. I said, Peter, yeah. you're joking. Anyway, they all came to this, and it was... Full. I don't know. It was twenty-five or thirty thousand. So all very excited. Back in Pudsey, Gary, the ex-paramedic, had joined the um, Yorkshire Ambulance Corps. But again, he'd had to leave again because he just mentally wasn't up to it. Great. He was a great paramedic, and he was at home, very down, very low. And his sister and her fella got tickets for the opening night of Phoenix Nights. So they were going to go across the Pennines from Pudsey into Manchester. Mm. So out of nowhere, Gary said, I'll tell you what, I'll drive you. They said, but you haven't got a ticket here. Don't matter. I'll sit and play Candy Crush or something. And it'll save you having to park up, which is very nice, you know, difficult to park at these venues. So they set off. And on the way, uh, Gary's sister or her boyfriend at the time managed to blag a ticket because there were a few odd ones for sale, but they were right at the back and they said, Do you want to and they come together anyway? They got a bit of ticket, cheapest tickets going, probably about 40 quid or something. Opening Nights of Phoenix Nights, everyone's there, you know, um, Richard Curtis, Lenny Henry, the great and the good, all sitting there in the front, all excited. Backstage, I was pacing up and down because I'd had this weird feeling going on. And um, they're all filtering into the audience. And I'd said apparently to Dave Spikey, who's played Jerry the Saint dave had some um he told me this later he said that i'd said to him the night before dave if i fall over on that stage tomorrow it's not a joke wow and i don't really remember saying that and i told dave because he was a hematologist very high up hematologist at Bolton general hospital so he had medical knowledge mm. so came the day and i'm backstage pacing around steve edge i think said to some of the lads and paddy mcginnis and a few of the boys what's up with ted he doesn't seem his normal self no
0: steve said that to me he he said i remember looking at ted and thinking he didn't look right he said and then you know we were backstage when you when it happened he said and it was the it was the sound you didn't sound right
3: yeah i didn't sound right and uh anyway and this is the strange thing now this is where the sliding doors moment mm. comes in. The audience started filling in. I'd already texted you and said I felt a bit weird. She said, well, pull out. I said, I can't. No, I won't. I'm going to do it. I'm okay. So Gary's sister and brother came in. So as the lights are coming down, they got shoved right to the front by the usher and said, just sit there. So they sat right at the front, three or four rows back from the front of the stage, which is really close. Gary is now up in half a mile away at the top in the God's. The show starts and it's a great success. Steve Royal comes out and does the juggling routine. Everyone was brilliant. And I was pacing around backstage going, oh, what's going on? What's happening? What's happening? And I wasn't on until the second act. During the break, Gary's sister looked and there was a seat next to her that was vacant. Nobody had taken it. So she texted her brother and said, there's a seat here right at the front. So he sets off. Takes about five minutes more to get down to the front and gets in right at the front. Curtain goes up or whatever, and it was Ray Vaughn doing his disco. Highly inappropriate songs, very <laughs> funny. And then the house lights went down, and then the music came up of um, Firestarter, Twisted Firestarter, by
0: Prodigy. Prodigy, and a
3: song I never want to hear again. And I never did hear it again, mm. nearly. Blue lights flashing like the police are looking for somebody in searchlights, and the lads under the stage say, go and you your on." And I was up the steps, up the steps, up the steps, and suddenly I'm on stage. And the only person on stage with me is a cameraman who's blasting out images of you right in the back. And I thought, oh, it's working. I got a few jokes in. And I said, "Uh, I've just come out of strange ways. And believe you me. And this is why Peter said knew something was funny. I said, they have got strange ways in there. And then I remember saying, I think I said, I'm going to have a lie down. Or I think I said, I'm going, I'm going. And I just remember a feeling of wanting to lie down. Mm. And apparently I dropped like a sack of spuds, you know. Gone, my heart stopped it's called ventricular fibrillation it's when your heart stops it's sudden, sudden death, death syndrome. syndrome yeah the danish football the captain you know
0: mm-hmm. uh, christian erickson
3: yeah uh, it was the young lad moamba playing for bolton at the same <clears throat> and
0: my friend jeffrey perkins who you remember died from it
3: yes and sadly there was no one around for jeffrey god rest him jeffrey dear man so i collapsed Everyone was nervously giggling and thinking, is this part of the act? Because nobody had seen the show. Nobody had seen the act. No. And people apparently were saying, is this part of the act? Like the moment
0: with Tommy Cooper?
3: Yeah. Oh, get up, Perry. You're not Tommy Cooper. God rest Tommy. Mm. You know, it was an awful way to go. Uh, So there I am, to all events and purposes, dead. And Gary heard my head crack. He was that close to the stage. And he saw that I'd bitten through my tongue. And he said to his sister, that's not right. That's not right. She said, well, you know what to do? He said, and he did. And he had his NHS pass on him by sheer chance. He pushed his way through the security cordon that didn't know what they were doing. Somebody said, you can't go there, mate. He said, I'm going there now. That man's in big trouble. I need to be with him right now. And he had the, because he's a hench, big, tough guy, you know, he's, he's an army guy. He had the kind of force of character to just go. And the fellow said, well, go on, do what you need to do. And he was on me with less than a minute pounded my heart and broke all my ribs, cracked my sternum, and a a consultant surgeon called Mr. Donald Adam came and uh, saved my life.
0: Amazing. There was a surgeon there as well at the front.
3: Yeah, you're going to have one of these, have it in front of a lot of people, you know. it's incredible. Incredibly lucky. But this is the strange thing. Gary went home that night. And his mum and dad said, it's on the news, that comedian. That was very nice. <laughs> that, Ted, that that Phoenix Nights. he died and people weren't sure whether I was alive or dead. And he said, well, he was alive when I left him. The ambulance managed to come. You know, They got there. But he kept me going for about 15 minutes, Gary. And he really did a sort of job on my chest. And he said that that moment touched something in him. And we became great friends. And he went on to recover his life. Recover his career. He didn't recover his marriage, but they're great friends. They've both got partners now. He's got two lovely lads who he sees all the time. They come and stay with him. And um, Aaron and and, uh, Joshua.
0: How did you find him?
3: uh, My son Jack put a statement out somewhere on the internet or something. And said, we're looking for, people thought he was a doctor or somebody medically. And both the doctor and uh, the surgeon and, and Gary got in touch. Because Gary was the first one up. Mm-hmm. and he did most of the work and uh, the surgeon the wonderful surgeon um who, who helped save my life he he contacted withenshaw that's an absolutely ace cardiac place in manchester in europe they're probably one of the best if not the world that you know you don't think of withenshaw as being top you know and the fact that they've been underfunded the whole hospital yeah i'll start ranting about that in a minute hmm. it's yeah scandalous what's up but there we are yeah it saved my life And it saved Gary's, and we're like blood brothers ever since. And you know what? The fact he pounded my heart, there was a bruise in the shape of his hand and palm and fingers on my chest over my heart because he pounded me for that long.
0: Oh, my God. Ted, I mean, the extraordinary thing is, and the brilliant thing is, that saving your life clearly gave Gary that self-belief again, made him realise his own worth.
3: Well, he didn't just do it for me. He's done it for other people, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm being very egotistical saying it's me because you do, because it's you, you know, but he's done it Mm. for so many other people, as have so many other paramedics.
0: And the idea that people like that would withdraw their labour just on a whim.
3: And if you look at what they're actually doing, nobody's walking away from it, you know, and you know that, and it is shame on some people that this has got to this stage. And Mm. times are hard, I know, and everyone's, you know, I, I, I don't want to get too into all that, but except to say, you know, we were quick to applaud the medical people during, you know, the dreadful plague. What happened after, you know? Yeah. I think it's Kipling, and he did make exceedingly good cakes, just trying to light the <laughs> load of it. These words, though, Mike, and it was about soldiers, which kind of applies to Gary's thing, but also the state of the nation, if you like. <laughs> Listen to me giving a state of the nation address. But it's just a, a little couplet. He goes, God and the soldier, all men adore, in times of trouble and in times of war. But when the war is won and the wrong is righted, God is forgotten and the soldier is slighted. Wow. Never gets a laugh, that, funnily enough. (laughs) And it's just money in the end, isn't it? So Mm. let's find it somehow.
0: Yeah. It's really moving, Ted, to hear that story and to also to see what you've taken from it, that real sense of the present that you've been given, the gift that you've been given by these people.
3: I've had eight years during which I've got two grandchildren. I'm very, very lucky, and I have to look after myself a bit more mm-hmm. than I was doing. But maybe that's the price you pay as you get a bit older. <laughs> Not too much wine. Forget the women but I can sing as much as I like.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. I will definitely take uh, the defibrillator. Is that a good thing to put into the time capsule?
3: But don't take mine because I've got one my own in my chest now. Have you? Yeah, I've got one. So if it happens again, it's there uh, like, a, like a life belt. It's, and these things cost loads of money, you know. Mm. It's a pacemaker stroke, fibrillator. Stroke, I <laughs> <laughs> don't want that as well and as my dad used to say when anyone listed all their ailments and woes he said on top of which I think I'm getting dandruff
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh bless your dad oh lovely oh Ted I remember that thing of not knowing if you were alive or dead not yet as I say in gladiator not yet my friend not yet
3: I salute you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, my dear man. Let's find out what else you want to put in the time capsule. What's your next thing? Okay, yes, it's ad break time. And I know we've only put one thing in so far, but it was certainly worth waiting for, wasn't it? We'll be back with the rest after these ads.
4: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
0: Welcome back. Right, let's return to Ted Robbins for more of his extraordinary stories and find out what else he'd like to put in his time capsule. All right, so, so far, we've got in there your pacemaker, defibrillator, Mm -hmm. which is the thing you want to get rid of, but also one of the things you want to keep.
3: Yeah, so I'll call that a thing I want to keep.
0: Okay, lovely.
3: And I've got a particular story about my food, which I meant to do, and what I really want to bury. I'd definitely like to bury this. (laughs) Um, and I lived just north of Bury, actually, in Lancashire. Um, I was about 20, it was 1979, so I'd be 24, Mm. and I'd take the liberty of calling myself a stand-up, as everyone's called now. In the old days, you were a stand-up comedian, and I'd um, managed to get a few little gigs, and I thought, I can do the clubs now, you know, because it was the age of the comedians, Uh, the old, do you remember the series, The Comedians, the Johnny Hamp? I do, yeah. People were on it like, um, well, it's almost like swearing now, but Bernard Manning was on Mm -hmm. it, Um, Jim Bowen, George Roper. uh,
0: Charlie Williams.
3: Charlie Williams, my flower, Mm -hmm. you know, and he was one of the first. Black comedians to appear on television.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, its material doesn't really stand up very well today. No. A lot of it doesn't translate very well, and it wasn't funny then. But he was funny; he was very funny, mm. uh, and he went on to do the Golden Shot, didn't he, Charlie Williams? But he, he did. Yeah, he struggled with that because it's a hard thing to do. You know what happens with TV is they, you do well as one thing, like a stand-up comic, they will reward you by giving you a game show to drive along. Yeah, well. It's a difficult thing to present a game show.
0: You've done game shows, though, haven't you, Ted?
3: Yeah, I, I presented, I think Chain Letters was uh, mm. the one. Chain, 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 chain. Letters. And um, <laughs> a few people presented it in that time. Jeremy Beadle used to present it, do you remember? That's right. Change yeah. a letter and it had a word. And uh, you had to change one letter. So you'd start with, you'd end up, start with Dare, and then inevitably you'd end up with, uh, change that to D, to U, C, K, Duck. Duck chain, and you're going, Oh, please don't do it, yeah, because it's in the dictionary, yeah. And we mean, of course, juice D U C E or oh, luck. Oh, yes. luck, yes, that's very good. I wish I thought of that. I read that one down as well, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I did do uh chain letters it was great fun, but you, you really got to concentrate and know what to do. And then, dear Charlie, sort of all over the place, mm. but yet, Jimbo. Bowen was given bullseye, and he himself was uh, hopeless, it was useless. But there was something about Jim the audience loved, because the first few shows, well, it was just shambles, really. Right, right over here, do I I look at that camera there? (laughs) And, of course, the famous... Was it apocryphal when somebody said, Jim used to say, great, spashing, fantastic, lovely, you know, mm. smashing, great, lovely, super, let's see what you would have won. And somebody apparently said, What are do you doing for a living? And he wasn't, the brain wasn't engaged. And he said, Well, I've, I've been made unemployed, Jim. Great, spashing, super. <laughs> uh, no,
0: it wouldn't surprise me.
3: Yeah, but the audience loved him and he was very. Bright goes a school teacher, Jim, and I knew him very well. Mm. But the night in particular that I definitely like to get rid of, I remember this, I was booked at the Willows Social Club, Salford. It's
0: already sounding bad. And as you
3: say about <laughs> Salford, if you've cut two ears, you're a sissy. You know, <laughs> <laughs> policeman himself said, would you mind accompanying me to the station? He said, why well, officer? I've not done anything. No, I just don't like walking around on my own round here. <laughs> and it's the Salford Willows Club. It was attached to the rugby league club and it was, it was a Saturday night place. And the audience were people who come for a night out and they wanted jokes. Mm. They wanted gags, quick fire, sure fire. I went to the doctor's, He said, you're obese. I said, I want a second opinion. He said, You're ugly as well. You know, (laughs) you had had to hit him with those. And there wasn't this relationship now which stand-ups have with their audience, which is great. And they they riff with them, is the phrase that we use now. And Mm -hmm. they'll talk to people and, and the audience will play along with you nowadays more. Yeah. And you know, will allow you a minute or so to get into it and follow what you're gonna say and Comics like Richard Herring, you know, great, and they, they they go on a journey, and you go with them. Mm. And it's a very subjective thing, but in those days, ah, oh, comedian. So, and they used to write. They put on the notice board the uh, committee which say, "Forthcoming, you know, who's coming next? We've got a, dancer, a singer, uh, Shirley singer, Crab- whatever Shirley Crabtree. That was that was Big Daddy's name, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, yeah. Shirley Crabtree. <laughs> I don't think she was a singer or he was a no. singer, but he spiced <laughs> it very well, didn't he? <laughs> We're going down a very surreal route. A here. very but, surreal
0: route, because you're a singer. You're one of my favourite singers. You're a singer in Creme Brulee.
3: Oh, the oh. Lady, the clock struck 13.
0: Oh.
3: I was searching.
0: I've never been so jealous.
3: That day's filming on that show, League of Gentlemen, was brilliant. Mm. And you know what? I, I got the job, Michael, because I, at the time, I was doing warm-ups. And after my nascent TV career with you, It it slipped and I wasn't, I wasn't going anywhere fast. In fact, I was getting snow blindness from looking at me diary. You know, I (laughs) couldn't get the bookings and I started to do more and more warm ups, which no one starts off doing No, because you don't set out to be a good warm-up man, but I knew how it worked and I didn't just try and say to the producers, look, can you look at my pilot show and I'd like to be on the show? I knew what they wanted. Mm. I just got married. I needed the money. And I was bloody good at it.
0: Well, uh, Ted, you can say that. Everybody says that. Well, Everybody says you were the best.
3: There were other very good Warwick men, mm. And I wasn't bad. I wasn't bad. And um, <laughs> I whispered that. It's no good yeah. on the radio, is yeah. it? It's so <laughs> the best. Um, but you don't want to. Nobody sets out to become the best Warwick man in the business. But the money was good. Blah, blah, blah. Phoenix Knights came out. And um, Voodoo Lady with... Um, post and Vasey and the men behaving badly, which was terrific. Mm. And following that I started to get more and more TV parts again. So I had a kind of, you know, I was on the crest of a slump before that. And then (laughs) suddenly I started getting stuff and Phoenix Nights really helped, you know, and and so did League of Gentlemen and working with David Walliams and Matt Lucas. Mm. So I kind of became a bit trendy again. You know, if you hang around long enough, people remember you again. You know what I mean? Quite, yeah. <laughs> We're nodding in agreement, with the pair of us here. <laughs> We're like Stadler and Waldorf at the Muppets now, aren't we? <laughs> Get over it, God. Um, so um, I got the part and I did that, blah, blah, blah. And then I got a part in uh, two pints of lager and a packet of the crisps, please. It was great, a few scenes, and it was really nice to do. And I was at the old BBC, mm. and um, the producer said to me, we've got a young guy doing the warm-ups, set. And he'd like to meet you, because uh, we've just got him and we think he's terrific. Would you? He said, would you have a look at him? And in between takes, I, I looked and watched this young man Sitting amongst the audience, standing in the audience you know, and see what's happening in the, in the you know in the drama, talk to the audience, keep them happy when they change the set or make big makeup or costume changes. It's a tricky thing you don't know whether you're going to be on for five minutes or 25 you know
0: I, I once saw you do an hour. Oh, God. It was extraordinary. Well, you were doing panto routines. it was incredible was was it was Simon Mayo who did a quiz ah yes called confessions. confessions it was called confessions yeah and the desk went down and they said we have to change the desk i've talked about this before on the podcast is the most extraordinary thing i've ever seen and they said ted we need you to cover and you said how long they said probably about an hour you grabbed the mic and it was amazing ted
3: it didn't usually say now they used to use tv speak which is uh, uh would just be a couple of seconds that's 10 minutes, it could be a couple of minutes, that's getting on for an hour. Um, could be a while, is reshoot tomorrow, you know. I remember that. They took the, the desk and I was thinking, what can I do? 10 mm. green bottles standing on the wall and all that stuff. Yeah, And um, it went on and on and on. And then finally, I did a Les Dawson joke, and Simon remembered this, get Simon Mail. I thought, what can I do? And it was a gag I'd seen Les do years before when I was in Run for Your Wife with him, the Ray Cooney farce. Right. And he looks out in the audience and he says, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, and he did it on the first night of this at the Theatre in Blackpool, the Grand Theatre in Blackpool, beautiful. Mm. I was a little Now I understood him and Eric Sice and Peter Goodright great cast. <laughs> But finished, and Les Smith uh, went dripping off him. He said, ladies and gentlemen, it's marvellous to be in my hometown, where I now live, near Blackpool. He said, uh, and I've got a great guest in the audience. He didn't want to be recognised, but uh, he's a great guy of mine. He does a lot of chalicey golf with Eric and myself. And we're all going, oh, who's this? And he said, Great British box, even put Mohammed Ali on the canvas years ago, should have been world champion, the one and only Henry Cooper, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Henry, stand up. And, of course, we all didn't Henry Cooper was in, we are all like this, looking over the lights. <laughs> Henry, he's got the house lights up, Henry. So they brought the house lights up oh. and we are all looking and he's pointing right at the back of the stalls going, Henry, stand up, Henry, Henry. And we're all looking, he went, oh, I'm so sorry, missus. <laughs> <laughs> and it's... Brought the house down. I bet. And I, I was a summer's evening, and I went back to me little dressing room I shared with a guy called Keith Ladd, and um, I watched the audience. I listened to them melting away into the Blackpool night, and I heard everyone laughing, and the mum was just going, Eric, <laughs> <could>, Eric, <Harry> could. <laughs> he couldn't stop laughing. Um, so I did that gag. Yes. And um, Simon, God bless him, remembered it. And when they did either a Christmas special or the very last show, he always would ask me to do the gag. Mm. So I did it. And right behind me, through the, through the tabs, through the curtains that they brought in, I was going Henry Cooper, Henry, Henry Cooper. Stuck his head through the curtains. No, don't mention my name. And it was him.
1: <laughs> and
3: I went, oh, what a lovely. And they they asked Henry Cooper to come and turn up to this one gag. Oh, how brilliant! Yeah. Actually, Arthur Askey used to do it before Les did it. So <laughs> some gags go
0: on. They do. They get passed down, which I think is, is a nice thing. It's not like you're nicking a gag. No, you always, no. always recognise where it's come from.
3: Yeah, you do. You do. And we said there are only seven gags in the world, and I've done, I've done them all. <laughs> but... Um, this night in Berry, that yes. I want to bury. Yes. The audience uh, looked up and saw this sweating, nervous young man. I was introduced Ted Robines or Ted Rogers. I used to get introduced a lot. <laughs> and I said, um, how do you do, ladies and gentlemen? And, blah, blah, blah. and there was, was some sort of ominous silence. They've all got their pints of Worthington bitter, you know, and they're having the scampi and a soup in a basket, you know, and they're all cabaret kind of room. And I was just starting. And it starts off. Silence, then they'll cough, and then a few months The worst is when people just ignore you. Uh, yeah, you know, that's the worst. I had a fellow once open a newspaper in front of me. That's the story. <laughs> I never finished the story about the walnut man, did I? <laughs> no, it's all right. Well, the walnut man who did two pints of lager, <laughs> yeah turned out to be Jason Manford Ah, and I said to him after he said what do you think T-? Nobody heard of him I said you're really good son I think I even said so mm. patronising and he said it's great the money's really good I think we used to get 250 quid at the time which compared to clubs and you know alternative comedy clubs where it would be a lot less Yeah. he said I've been off them all I said listen what I do and I meant this I said I'm not being funny or anything <laughs> often I'm not funny I said <laughs> do the ones you've been contracted to, but don't do any more. And he went, but I said, because the next thing you know, you look around, it'll be 20 years time and you'll still be doing more months. He said, take it from me. And I said, now I mean that. And do you know what? He talked about this on another podcast he did with Ralph Little recently. Mm. And they, he told this story because I saw him in a year or so later and he started to become a big name. Mm. And he said, Ted, I did what you did, said, and look, it's going great. And he's gracious enough to to say that, you know, so I charged him 30 guineas for the (laughs) professional advice. So there we are. So I did some good. So we go back to me on stage sweating at Salford, 1979 and I'd been through my whole routine in about two and a half minutes three minutes and time takes forever I thought I'll hit him with my best gag mm. I'll hit him with my best and I remember I've got nothing and I was just about to be pulled off stage and paid off with the big hook like that. <laughs> and um, I said I thought I'll hit him with my best gag I was going to save this for the end just because I know this was the end and the gag is I'll very quickly tell you it's a very old gag the gag is my great uncle Arthur died went to a seance and my auntie said to the medium can you he hear me he said, Yes, love, it's me, Eric. To know Arthur, what is it, Arthur? To know Arthur, what's it like on the other side? He said, It's not too bad, love. We have sex in the morning, then we have uh, some salad for lunch, then we have a bit more. Sex, nooky, then more salad, and then it's sex and salad all night long. She said, Oh, oh, I never thought, I never thought heaven would be like that. He said, Heaven be bugged I'm a rabbit on Hampstead
1: Heath. (laughs) Now, it's a very
3: old gag, and I thought it was a great gag. But remember, I've been dying the death for a few minutes and silence. So, and I had that dry mouth you get Mm. when you're terrified. I'm going, Well, my great. Uh, seriously, folks. Uh, so, yeah, go on, then make us laugh. Oh. I said, uh, said uh, "My great uncle Arthur died," and a voice from the back shouted, "Well, I bet he went through fucking laughing, son." <laughs> and it brought the house down. I bet it did. And when the heck was funnier than you, oh. bus fare home. Bye. Mm. And it got paid off. And uh, so, I'd like to bury that definitely.
0: Yeah. Although the lesson of that, having been through that, survived it, you know.
3: Well, I used to work with Des O'Connor a lot, who worked with me dad as a red coat. Mm-hmm. And he was a young comic, and he got by and charmed Des, and people liked him. He was warm. He was never a great stand-up comic, never a great singer, as Eric Morgan <laughs> used to say. But he used to say to me, as long as they like you more than the material, that's the important thing. And he also said that comedy, stand-up comedy, is the easiest job in the world and it's the hardest. Mm. So when it's going well, you're the king of the world, but when it's not, you want the trapdoor to open up like it did with me the other way around, and you want to die. <laughs> and uh, you want to get off as sharp as you. It's the easiest and the worst. And that's why successful stand-up comics have always traditionally been paid more in the old days of variety. Yeah. Usually you just to do jokes. Well, you know, you try it. It is a very tough job. But when you well know it helps. You know, I found post-Phoenix Nights and mega Gentlemen Gentleman things. Once you get a profile and mm. people go, oh, he's dead you've got something. But when you're a young lad, nobody knows who you are. No. It is
0: tough. It is tough. Strangely enough, I went to see Jason Manford on stage. I did? You know, just recently. And he told a story about one of his first stand-ups, the first big one he'd done.
1: Mm.
0: And Peter mm. Kay was the host. This is interesting, isn't it? A connection. Oh, yeah. And he said that he thought he was going to do seven minutes, and it turns out he had to do ten. Mm-hmm. So he rang his dad and said, "Have you got a joke?" And his dad told him a joke, and then he did the joke, and it died the death, got nothing. Mm-hmm. And he thought, "I don't understand. It's a brilliant joke." And he came off. And uh, Peter Kay said to him, "What are you, what are you doing?" He, he said, "What?" He said, "Why did you tell that joke?" Mm-hmm. He said, "Well, I, I thought it was, you know, it's a good joke." He said, "I know. It got a big laugh when I told it just before you came on." <laughs>
3: So Peter had done it before.
0: Yeah. God, isn't that awful? He hadn't been listening He'd backstage concentrating I on hadn't his theme.
3: Listen, listen to what's going on around you, you know. Stay aware. Watch out for sharpshooters and <laughs> bags and to rotten marshes. <laughs> Could be you, Max.
0: Well, just for you, Ted, I'm gonna bury bury. Thank you. This is the first time I've done that. That's good news.
3: Bury, bury, yeah.
0: Lovely. All right, that's good. We've buried one. We've got one that you're keeping. Mm-hmm. So we've got three more.
3: All oh, right. Well, um, the other thing I'd keep is, this is probably, I don't know if you know this, but I've been a great follower of rugby, football, rugby, uh, and I loved the game. I took it up as a, when I was at school, I was a little fat lad who had rheumatic fever, which was one of the reasons I had trouble in later life with my heart. Right. I couldn't do sports or games, and I went to an old-fashioned grammar school, a little grammar school, and up to the age of 14, I wasn't allowed, because at 11, I'd been in hospital for nearly a year to do my first year again. And it was one of those schools... It sort of tries to be a public school, you know, a bit sort of
1: Hogwarts-ish.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but the rugby team were the kind of kings of the world. Nice to look at them. Oh, God, that'd be great. Whereas a lot of lads would do anything to get out of playing rugby. Yeah. Two things was the long-distance cross-country run and the rugby. Mm-hmm. I was given the all-clear, started play, and uh, Emlyn James, the Welsh, said, uh, you like the rugby? Don't you not know, you, boy, uh, Robbins? I said, yes, sir, I do. I ended up playing for the first 15, I played for the county, yeah. as a prop forward in the scrum, and I went on, played for Woodrow Rugby Club, then we moved to Rossendale and Lancashire, played for them, and when I was 22, we won the Caldy Sevens Plate wow. competition, and we won, and I got a little mug, and it's still a big competition the Caldy Sevens, and it was one of the greatest days and triumphs and I just love it, and I had a little photograph of the team at the time, and there's no jokes no comedy, but I'm so proud of that, and there's my son Jack plays now for Battles Rugby Club, And the where did you play? I played
0: prop forward. He plays prop as well, doesn't he? He does, yeah. Ah. Foot row, foot row, yeah. Ah. Well, the fat
3: boys play <laughs> normally, you know.
0: Well, you say the fat boys, but if you won a trophy for playing
3: sevens... I was quick. Oh. Well, I was in Charity Fire, you know, one of the first jobs ever. When I was playing a lot of rugby, I was very fit. Mm. And they filmed it at the Oval Sports Centre in Bebbington, Merseyside. Right, And it was the Paris Colomb Stadium because it didn't have any uh, floodlights because it was so run down at the time. (laughs) They went and they filmed it and they were looking for extras. So I turned up. There were hundreds of athletes, all runners, you know, skinny runners there. But they leapt on me. They said, oh, no, we need throwers. We need big people. They said, can you do do the shot, the discus, the hammer? I said, yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Discus, I think I nearly killed the director. I ended up... (laughs) doing the shot put so if you watch Chains of Fire when the American team come in and Brad Davis you know Midnight Express Mm
1: -hmm. he played
3: uh, Charlie Paddock I think who ran against Abraham's in real life Yeah, and I'm there with my shot put you know because I used to do that at school you know big metal lump and just throw it but (laughs) I was quite good at it I was strong and I played it to me some years later and he went not you, <laughs> <laughs> home start,
0: yeah. Yeah. you know. oh brilliant
3: and I was telling all my friends about it so, so I'd keep that as well so that's yeah a keeper.
0: what a lovely thing yeah yeah that trophy goes in absolutely and the memory of being that fit how nice
3: oh I know I know you know I'm walking up the stairs <laughs> I want a medal for that now you know our <laughs> uh, youth what happened uh, those halcyon days we'll just take
0: a little pause now we'll just have a little silence yeah. for our lost youth you and I sit here and go, oh, dear.
3: Mm. Oh, dear. Right, old and knackered now with a love of red wine, and um, <laughs> on we go. On we go. So what's next? Well, I'd like to keep the BAFTA that I never got.
0: <laughs> right. What was it for?
3: Am I bitter about this? Well, I did a show called The Slammer on children's television. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great direct producer called Steve Ride who did Dick and Dom in Da Bungalow mm-hmm. and he came up with it. they wanted to do a kids variety show bringing back a lot of the old acts and circus and variety and the idea was it was set in a kids prison yeah no, no, not a kids prison a prison for people who've committed crimes against show business. <laughs> you know, you'd never get away with it. That's terrifying. And uh, Melvin O'Doom, who's now like a big uh, broadcaster himself, Melvin, he's a DJ, wonderful fella. But Melvin O'Doom played one of the um, trustees in the imaginary prison. Mm. And uh, his crime was, he, at a Royal Variety performance, he'd said, boom, in front of the Queen. <laughs> he didn't know he was her but And there we are. Um, so he... he we did about six, seven series. It was fantastic. Yeah, was
0: cool. I remember seeing it.
3: Yeah, great acts came on. Mm. We had big, some big names and, and uh, vocal acts, you know, the gymnastic acts, old circus acts. Wonderful. Mm. A guy who used to come out of a dream balloon and he changed into Superman. What was his name?
0: <laughs> fantastic. Was it Clark something? Yes, <laughs> God, Kent. Oh, that's his name. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> I
3: remember, we always hanging around. he we played <laughs> off someone. Anyway, it was hugely successful. His show, and he got the BAFTA in about about ten years ago, I think. Now at the CBBC, he got the Children's BAFTA. And Steve rang me, said, "We've been nominated. We've got it." And I said, "Yeah." Well, I'll ask. When's When's the night? The Grosvenor Hotel. He said, uh, "No." I said, "But I'm the." Top of the bill. I was. I was the governor. Yeah. Who's the governor? You're the governor. And I come out. I was the governor of this prison and the MC, mm. and it was great. So the kids say kids, 23-year-olds now come up to me saying, We used to watch you when we were kids, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I said, Great. Oh, the BAFTA BAFTA. Wow. You know, I know it's only a children's one, but it, it's the same. It's the BAFTA thing. He said, No, Ted, you your name's not actually. I so said, What do you mean? He said, Well, you got to have your name in the program. No. I to the bill he said, no. So he got one for producing, which he deserves. And the directors, two of them, they got a BAFTA each for directing it. And I didn't get my BAFTA. Oh. So I'm not bitter about it. No, 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 of course not. It, no. it was wonderful. And I still get repeat fees, so thank you. Ah. But um there we are. That is calling, isn't it? <laughs> There's a lot of business in this uh, podcast, Michael. For many
0: <laughs> it's not business. This is this is a reasonable argument, I think.
3: I was in the BAFTA award-winning. Yeah. Yes. Quite. But you know, it shouldn't matter, and it doesn't matter, but it does.
0: Yes. Well, I hope people will listen to this, and somebody at BAFTA will send
1: Enough.
3: you. I think Steve made me a cardboard. Because, what interesting postscript for this was. They rebroadcast some of the slammer. And um, a lot of the games kind of in gags was like there was a there was the um, Sir Bruce Forsyth wing, you know, <laughs> uh, the uh, Silla Silver Black Wing, you know, like the, the old acts, mm. traditional acts. And Steve had to go through and re-edit it just to check that there wasn't, should we say, one of the names that we could mention? Yep. <laughs> there were one or two yeah i will not say who it was but uh but there we are that's the times we live in
0: we've all got those everybody's got the moments where you've you know you view someone as a joke or you mention them in things and and they are not de rigueur and rightly so but you know there you are
3: i know it, it, it all comes down i think all comedy actually to get a bit philosophical about it mike is and it was Alan Alder, the great actor, who, who was Hawkeye, Pierce, and MASH.
1: Mm.
3: I read his autobiography, and we were talking about comedy, and he, he played all of Hawkeye like Groucho. Hey, yeah, yeah. you know, what are you doing, Mr. Marx? I'm fighting for your honour, which is more than you ever did, you mm-hmm. know. And I uh, never look a gift horse in the mouth, but in your case, I'll make an exception.
1: <laughs> you know,
3: I'll dance with you till the cows come home. In fact, thinking about it, I'll dance with the cows until you come home, you know, and he said... I think with comedy, people say, you can't say that. You don't do that. You look at the heart of the person who's telling the joke Mm -hmm. or being funneled. And we know we're very expressive human beings. Every little tick, every nuance of our face and our inflection, you know when someone's being serious. You know when they're not being. Mm -hmm. You know all these things. And when someone's being hateful in a gag, you can tell. And... Now, people, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't say that. Personally, I look at the heart of the person telling the joke. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and I think. I think we should be allowed to think for ourselves and say, well, are you being unkind and unpleasant? I mean, I know things have changed, and quite rightly so. And yeah. you look, and some stuff doesn't, you look, oh, dear, oh, dear. But uh, it's to do with your heart and soul, and that's what I think. Life's too short to so worry about that as long as we're be- – Les Dawson's motto in life, Mike, you know, he used to say, and he writes it in his book, he said, I would just say this, be kind. Be kind. You know, mm. and it, it's so true, isn't it? Just there's enough shit in the world, isn't there? And people yeah. going, you don't know what people are going through. No, just the kinds of people. And if if you can do whatever you do by acting yourself or performing, singing or telling a few gags, I love Jethro the comedian. He used to say at the end of his act, which included some pretty pretty meaty stuff, <laughs> and he said, "Well, the yeah, ladies and gentlemen, I just like to say." Uh, I hope, you know, tonight I haven't offended too many people. I, if I have said anything offended you, I'm sorry, just trying to have a little bit of a laugh and a joke with you tonight. It's a terrible world. If you look at the news, there's all sorts of things happening, people doing terrible things. Just trying to have a laugh and a joke with you tonight. So if you do take any offence at all, well, bollocks to you. <laughs> 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 well, of course, so there we are.
0: going back to the League of Gentlemen, that's Royston Vasey, which is Chubby Brown, isn't it?
3: Chubby Brown, of course. Mm. And uh, to... To his eternal credit, and and Reese and Steve and Mark and Jeremy Jeremy Dyson Rice, yeah, they they adore the old style comics, you know, and they they brought him on.
0: Yes, and they're fantastically gentle and caring people. They are. They They, are. they will find humour in all sorts of things, which is interesting, isn't well, it? Well, they do, and, and as you say, it's the heart of it.
3: Well, I I'll tell you the truth now. This I got the part of Tony Cludo. And people might not realise the gag there was there was an old crooner called Tony Monopoly. Do you remember
1: him? <laughs> yes, That's I do. That's what the yeah.
3: gag is. And he's called Tony <laughs> Cluder. And um, I was written into it after the show was up and running because it was a radio series first of all, mm. on the town with the League of Gentlemen. And the town was called Spent in the radio series. Yeah. And then they became the CV and they called it Royston-Basey because they loved Roy Chubby Brown. Mm. And I got the job, just when the series, later series began. So I couldn't get on the box. So I was doing warm-ups and I was a bit of a old bugger. Mm. And the agent said, look, there's six dates here. They wondered whether you'd go to York's TV and do the warm-up for it. I said, what is it? He said, it's the League of Gentlemen and they just won the Perrier Award. And I'll be honest with you, at the time, I said, here we go, another bunch <laughs> of university rooms. Outside. I think I'm a red-nosed, bow tied, bloody comedian. They'll look down their nose at me. And well, I am all those things, but yeah. <laughs> and um, I turned up. And normally, if you're doing comedy as a warm-up, you don't go out in both battles with loads of gags straight away. If it's a comedy show, if it's a game show, you gotta fill in try and mm. But if they're doing comedy, just try and, you know, not come out and do loads of Joey Joey. Bang, 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 gags.
0: Yeah, you don't want to be funnier than the show.
3: Well, funny in a different way, you know, or funny, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. i take your point. Mm. And so I went out and I was quite a bitter cynical man. And there's this lovely audience all once in a laugh. I thought, sorry. And I gave them both barrels, gags, did the lot, did Les, did Joe. <laughs> All the stuff, and uh, and I thought, oh, God, I'm going too far here. And the audience are roaring. I thought I'm going to get rollicked here because mm-hmm. I've had that before when the audience are really laughing. The floor goes. could you because Tarquin, or the host, is frightened. The audience getting a bit tired, meaning don't you get the laughs and get off.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But I didn't. I steamed on, steamed on, and then I looked down, and there's the lads roaring with laughter. Brilliant. They loved it. And afterwards they would so I felt ashamed of myself. I went away thinking, oh God, they were so magnanimous and kind. And and then my agent trying said, They've written a poem for you. Wow. No audition, Tony cluedo <laughs> So I thought, well, do you know what Robbins, for once in your life learn something from this.
1: Yeah. It's yeah. Stop
3: being bitter twisted
0: bastard it was my ambition in life when they were on and they were doing something to get any part at all any part. i would have loved it never mind
3: it was just today's filming and again the kudos you get from that people yeah know everything about it yeah rightly so lady stopped me one from blackpool pier and she was nuts about phoenix night she loved it and she had a tape recorder it was a windswept blackboard in the summer seasons when she said ted robbins yeah i said yeah Ben Perry? I said, yes, that's right. said, Will you just say the first lines you say in Phoenix Nights for me tape? Well, I will. Yeah, but I I don't know what they are. She said, I'll do tell you. And she told me what they were. I said, all right. And the first lines I say in Phoenix Nights is I'm in the Banana Grove, my opposite club to the Phoenix Club. Mm. And I'm addressing a load of other agents and club managers and bookers and I've got my bow tie, on. it's like, a bit like Bernard Manning, and I'm going, uh, and it cuts to me mid-sentence, and I go, and as I say, she has got a cock, so you have been warned. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great line.
0: What a great line.
3: So there I am, in a windswept black pig, going, as I say, she has got a cock, so, and of course, that's just when the family walked past them. What did that mum say? That, ignore him. <laughs>
0: It's like a scene from Phoenix Nights.
3: It was, it was just like that, yeah.
0: It was <laughs> like oh, Brilliant. All right, Ted, I'm going to take your absolutely well-deserved BAFTA, which I hope you keep well-polished.
3: Oh, yes, I polish it every night.
0: No. <laughs> In your dreams. In your dreams. Yeah. and we're going to put it in the time council for you so when people open it they'll go yeah i remember ted he was a bafta winner yes i didn't know that but look at that that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> we got one more thing ted to put in there
3: well it's very corny but i would put my family um my son and daughter jack and molly molly's mm. molly makes cakes She's the World Cake Ice Decorating Champion. She's off to Las Vegas shortly to do a promotion with cake makers. She's got her own store. She does stuff online. She's a very lovely, clever girl. She's bought three chihuahuas. We all live together now, so she's got three chihuahuas, which I'd also like to Betty. But um, (laughs) that reminds me of a joke. The lady... She's rather posh lady, like the lady in uh, Old Creature in Small, and she had a little chihuahua, and his hair was coming out. so she went to the vet and she said, "Oh, my chihuahuas um, it's his hair." And he said, "Oh, I, it's it's canine distemper." He said, "Don't worry about that. Yeah, alopecia. Have this cream made up with the chemist, the pharmacy, and uh, just rub it in little. Oh, thank you. She said, Come on, chickens, one of the dogs called. She goes to the chemist, rather posh area. Yes, make this up for me, certain chemist. Comes like out. He says, "Um, there, I'm, Adam." He says, "Um." rub that into your head three times a day and the head will grow back. She said, oh, it's not for my head, it's for my chihuahua. He said, well, in that case, keep off your bike for a fortnight. (laughs) (laughs) My daughter, Molly, (laughs) I'm worried because my we run out of battery again. Um, (laughs) My son, Jack, who produces on Blue Peter, Really? sister producer, yeah. He's been for a few years now. He drives it along.
0: You are extraordinary, you Robinses. What a family. What a dynasty you've become.
3: Well, actually, my my sister Kate, you know well, Mm -hmm. Kate Robbins, who was married to Keith Atack. They're still friends. They they are divorced now. And um, Keith was in a band called Child. Kate... You know of she's enjoying a renaissance with Ricky Gervais and people now. Yeah. Her daughter Emily Atak, is doing all sorts of things Amazing uh, on yeah. the telly. Um they, in fact she does something quite serious. So uh, she's helping um campaigning against men in particular, doing online awful messages to women, young women. Right. And in general, sending absolutely I won't go into great detail, but she gets
0: No, no, it's extraordinary, isn't it?
3: So she's actually addressed an all common select committee about this. Really? And the BBC doing a documentary about it. And in the meantime, she's doing her own comedy show, being very rude, very naughty, with Keith <laughs> Lemon, is it, on Celebrity Juice? Yeah. So Emily, her, her sister Martha, is her agent. And George, her brother, he's not actually in show business, but he's a very funny guy. I'll tell you a very quick story about Emily being in the jungle. It was the year she came second, so they kind of, she became princess of the jungle. Mm. The year then Harry Redknapp won it. Yeah. And it kind of really boosted Emily. And Kate went out to Australia to meet her. And at the time, I was playing Widow Twanky at the Plaza Cinema, Stockport. Yeah. So I was staying at my little hotel. And I heard about it, and she'd just been voted out. So it was the last night, Kate flown out and Martha, her sister. So my sister and my two nieces are staying at the, the seven-star hotel this stay at fantastic mm-hmm. and she's there and they're all on the family whatsapp group and i was just having me a, a coffee and a can of coke and some crisps from the vending machine at the stockport <laughs> travel lunch <Lounge. laughs> i thought i used to be the big shot in this family so there's a case my sister jane who's in eurovision 1980 with Kate. Yeah. They came third with Love Enough for Two. She's a sculptress now.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Emma, who you've met, I think, yeah. was married to a lovely man called Simon Shelton, mm-hmm. Simon Barnes, who was the actor, dancer, choreographer for Clifford Chiddy. also was Tinky Winky. Was he? He sadly passed away, Simon. uh, So Tinky Winky was in our family. And my younger sister, Amy, was in a thing called The Royal Mm -hmm. with Wendy Craig and her husband, my brother-in-law, Robert Dawes, Bob Dawes. Bob Dawes, great actor. He was in Outside. Lovely man. Yes, yes similar genre to yourself, Mike Lee. No, you are. You're in the same sort of category, you know, young...
0: Well, that's very nice of you to say that. I, I like yeah,
3: that. 20, you know, 20-ish, plays 29-year-olds. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah young yeah. lead.
0: Yeah, very much so.
3: So was that side of the family. And then,
0: of course, your mum and dad go back.
3: Well, Betty, Mike, and my, my mum, Betty, God lover, First cousin was a guy called Mike McCartney, mm-hmm. who um, was in The Scaffold. With Lily the Pink, and thank you very much. Yes. And he's a brother as well, who also had a pop group in Liverpool, um Beatles or something, Paul. No, never heard of him. No, no.
0: no. Poor lad.
3: So Paul is my first cousin once removed, moved. And he Amazing. Had a, he had a party back on the world not so long ago for all. He ran up and said, hey, Cherry Boy, you know, we haven't been together for a <laughs> while, you know. Great.
1: So <laughs> uh, we're
3: having a do. And he just had a do at Uncle Jim's house. Oh, how lovely. He bought in Heswell when." The Beatles took off. You know, he bought Jim this lovely house. And uh, Mm a very funny story. He went to see my mum when her brother Bert, Bert Danner, my uncle Bert, died. Bert was a crossword compiler. Did it for the Times, the Telegraph, Financial Times. And he was also Paul's godfather. He's considerably older than Paul, but he was his first cousin as well. Mm. Bert died, and my mum was very low and she loved him very much. Suddenly out of the blue, Paul came through the back door in Bebbington. He used to just turn up. He was on his way somewhere. She went, Oh, hi, I love And she really loved him for him. Mm. She loves all her family and she her first cousin's very close. Big family, mm. the McCartney's. And um Paul sat with her for ages and ages, and she said, "Oh, made some tea." And He said, "Oh, yeah, I'll make the tea, Bessie. You sit there, Mother. Mm. you know." And she said, "She, where are you going? He said, "Oh, I'm going on to America eventually, but don't worry." Oh, and then she looked at the time. She said, "Look, look. He said, Oh, don't worry about the plane." So he made another cup of tea in the other bus. He laughed at her and got to her. To actually, Paul, I'm really worried about your flights. When does your plane go? And he said, "Not in the big anyway." He said, "Bessie," he said. The plane goes when I want it to go. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> and she went, all oh, right. <laughs> it wasn't on jets. I couldn't believe he could afford the <laughs> uh, 10 pounds, you know, first to get on, you
0: know. He could have bought two seats and have a spare one next to him. He's that rich. He's that. <laughs> so, um, do you know, Kate told me a lovely story about him going to the hospital, to see your mum when she was in hospital.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And singing to her. Yeah. Singing Blackbird. He did. I think it's really lovely.
3: It is. And it's such a beautiful song. And he, um, he wrote the song Teddy Boy. So I'm bringing it back to me again now, which is on his first album. This is a story of a boy named Ted. And it's just a daft. The lyrics don't mean anything, but it's in his book called Lyrics, where he talks about all the songs he wrote and the words. And he actually, very kindly, at the end of the chapter on Teddy Boy, uh, says, actually, Ted Robbins went on to enjoy a successful career in show business himself.
1: So <laughs> that's
3: a waste of money. No, I'd um, <laughs> So I'm very lucky. I've got a family who are just wonderful, and I want to keep them. Yeah. And hopefully my grandchildren, Lily and Oscar, will, you know, be there forever. Well, for, for the next generation. And uh, yeah. And the final thing before me batteries wear out. Right? Keep going, you fool. <laughs> my dad was born and raised in a little town in North Wales called Wrexham, and their football club. They were always in the fourth, old fourth division, third division. And I, as a young lad, used to go with my dad and watch Rexon. 70 years he supported them. When he died, uh, the board, they invited me and Jack to be the guests of honour at the first match of the season. Uh. And they put a big photo of Dad's in micro 70 years of red. <laughs> and the teams all cheers in the crowd. Boy, I said, they'd love that. Anyway, Jack started going to school. He was five. He's in reception class in Lancashire. And it's about 92 when it was all the great United... It was, you know, David Beckham and Skolls gigs, the class yeah. of 192 yeah, yeah, So, everybody supported Man United. So, Jack, very important little lad and girls, said, uh, What team do you support? Oh, I support Man United. Man United, you know, we were in Lancashire. Mm. You went to our broth, who do you support? Man United. <laughs>
1: went
3: to Mars, who do you support? Man United. He was like, So, Jack came out of school and said, uh, I said, How are you? you look very thoughtful? I picked him up. He wasn't even five, I think. He was reception class. He was about four and three quarters. Mm. But he's chatting away and he went very quiet. I said, You all right, son? He said, Yeah. He said, What football team do we support? And I said, Well, me and granddad, we support Wrexham.
0: Oh no. At that point, Ted's battery ran out. <laughs> <laughs> hey Ted.
4: Mike, I'm so fucking sorry about.
0: This. <laughs> that's right. You've got to finish that story, though. You know, if you manage to get a bit of charge in there, I'm still online. So right. if you if you click back in, you'll come back on to me when you get a bit of battery.
4: I'm if I do the Wrexham story,
0: got. You're there. I know. Although it's rather, it was really lovely. He said, "Which football team do we support?" And you said, "Well, me and your granddad, we support Wrexham." And That's where you finished
4: that <laughs> the story is i'll tell you about it
0: be there. yeah i'm here in fact ted this is going to work i can record this off this phone onto my thing and it's going to work this so you tell me the story on this and we'll use that it'll be it'll be really Where interesting yeah it's a really Where interesting way to do it
4: right well let's do it now then so jack looked up and he said which team do you support because everyone supports man united and I said, well, me and Granddad, we support Wrexham. And he went, right, well, I'm going to support Wrexham as well. Next day, he came out of school, still looking thoughtful. He said, Dad, I said, yeah, he said, do you support any other teams? Because no one's heard of Wrexham. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, when I was a lad, I said, I support Liverpool as well, because I used to stand on the cop the old shanky days and mm. I did and uh, actually I used to go and watch Everton as well because rugby was my first in love. but uh, you know I, I like it because get the footy he said well can we support Liverpool and Wrexham <laughs> but if they ever play each other we want Wrexham to win I said that's the arrangement and thus it has stayed for 25 years Michael the arrangement hasn't altered and Wrexham have still yet to beat Liverpool or indeed play them Uh, However, recent events, Ryan Reynolds and his other multimillionaire film star friend mm -hmm. have bought the club uh, who are in the conference, which is the fifth division. So they're not strictly in the league and they just missed, they've missed promotion the last couple of years and Ryan Reynolds has bought they bought the club between them their plans are to take Wrexham to great heights and they're doing really well this season and Ooh. so much so that uh, there's been a two part documentary about Wrexham Football Club this yeah. little town in North Wales so I watched it uh, it's amazing you know to, to see this big kind of movie about this little town where I used to go and stand with my dad and uh <laughs> and watched them in, in, in the 70s, you know, kicking each other up and down. The they always played good football, Wrexham.
0: I look forward I to there. you and your son both standing on the terrace at Liverpool shouting, Come on, Wrexham!
4: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I would love it. In fact, I think years and years and years ago, there was a pre-season friendly with Wrexham and Liverpool. There was a bit of interplay between them. They played each other in a friendly and they actually only lost 5-1 or 5-2. <laughs> and for a short while, they were winning
1: Wrexham.
4: And Jack and I were shouting our heads off. It was great. Mm. So definitely Wrexham Football Club.
0: Who knows what I the future over. brings. But, Ted, what an absolute joy it's been to talk to you. It's lovely to oh see oh you my. again. It's great oh to see I you mean, looking so I'm well. And I have such fond memories of our time together. Well, so thank you for doing this.
4: Up again. I, I know this sounds trite but I mean the same right back at you Mike and I hope we meet up again very soon And if we'll I could I'd take you one.
0: to the old school and buy you a drink
4: the old school can't yeah. oh, wait see after coronation street cats getting sold. So
0: <laughs> brilliant no, times
4: no pack drill we know where, where the bodies are buried Mike
0: indeed indeed uh,
4: thank you very much mate and in the words of another great comic I loved remember wherever you go in life well there you are
0: you have been listening to my time capsule with me mike fenton stevens and my lovely guest ted robbins thank you to ted for recording two episodes with me and for being just as entertaining the second time around and a lot clearer There are lots of other episodes, nearly all of which sound, well, really lovely and if you subscribe to this podcast you will be sent each new episode when it's released and then you can decide if you want to listen to it or not But before you go, do review the show and rate it It really encourages others to listen to the podcast Oh, and don't forget to subscribe as well You can follow me or my time capsule on social media, you just search Mike Fenton Stevens or my time capsule to find us and we'd be happy to answer any questions on there and take suggestions for future guests. The theme tune, written by Past the Peas Music, is available on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production for Acast, produced, in this case, twice, by John Fenton-Stevens. Thanks, John. I'll see you very soon, and don't be embarrassed if, like me, you found parts of this podcast really moving and you shed a little tear. I mean, let's face it, I'm openly emotional. The other day I pulled into a petrol station and, honestly, I...